0: looking to refresh your closet home or beauty routine this spring walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop from chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware go to walmart.com now trending that's walmart.com now trending for the hottest fashion home and beauty finds your style at walmart New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of rape, murder, and violence against women. We'd like to advise an extra warning for sensitive content. If you or someone you know has been assaulted, you can call 800-656-HOPE to speak with a trained counselor 24-7. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Please note that there are many variations on the story of Argus Panoptis. Our dramatization incorporates elements from several versions to give you the most dramatic retelling possible. The foul stench emanating from the cave entrance burned Argus' nostrils. It reeked of rotting flesh and decay, powerful enough to drive any mortal man to vomit. But for the giant, Argus Panoptes, whose body was covered in one hundred eyes, it merely confirmed that he was in the right place. With a torch in one hand and a sword in the other, Argus entered the cave. His eyes peered into the darkness scanning for any sign of movement. Slowly and cautiously, he made his way deeper into the cave. The stench grew fouler with each step. He knew he was getting close. As Argus rounded a corner, he stopped dead in his tracks. His one hundred eyes gazed upon the sleeping, half-serpent, half-woman, beast before him. Echidna, the mother of monsters. Together with her husband, Typhon, she had given birth to Greece's most terrible monsters. Cerberus, the Nemean lion, Hydra, Scylla. Her spawn preyed on mankind spreading terror wherever they went. Queen Hera had had enough of Echidna. It was time to put an end to the horror. Argus's eyes were watchful of everything. Some gazed on the sleeping monster. Others were on the lookout for any danger. Perhaps one of Echidna's devilish children was lurking in the shadows, waiting for the right moment to protect their mother. Argus inched closer. He knew he had no time to waste. If Echidna were to awaken, it would spell almost certain death for him. The time to strike was now. Argus raised his sword and bore it down deep into the mother of monsters' flesh. Blood sprayed from the wound, covering Argus and blinding several of his eyes. He stabbed Echidna again and again and again, until the mother of monsters breathed no more. Argus stood alone, catching his breath. His 100 eyes stared at the bloody corpse. Now, at last, Hera would know that he was her most loyal servant. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling their stories, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts. Where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a 5-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today we're discussing Argus Panoptis, a giant with 100 eyes spread over his entire body. Unlike most of the giants, who rebelled against the gods, Argus was one of Queen Hera's most loyal servants. Giants are staples of human storytelling. In the Bible, giants are said to have appeared as a race of beings called the Nephilim. Though sometimes translated as fallen ones, the Nephilim were sons of God who roamed the earth before Noah's flood. In the book of Numbers, the Nephilim were said to have made humans look like grasshoppers, leaving many scholars to believe that this was a hint of their enormous size. And of course, the most famous giant in the Bible was the Philistine, Goliath. The Greeks called these imposing figures, gigas, the plural form being gigantes. And it's in the word gigantes, where we get the word giant from. But gigantes is more than just a Greek word. It's also the name of a race of giants. According to the poet Hesiod, The Gigantes were children of Gaia and Uranus. Various Greek poets incorrectly described them as being Titans, probably because the Gigantes waged war against the Olympian gods, just like the Titans did. And like the Titans, the Gigantes wanted to rule over Earth themselves. The war became known as the Gigantomachy. It began when Alcyonus, leader of the Gigantes, stole cattle from Helios, the sun god. The only way the Gigantes could be defeated was if a mortal fought alongside the gods. Heracles, son of Zeus, became that mortal. Heracles defeated Alcyanus, and soon after the gods killed most of the Gigantes, one by one. The gods buried the gigantes deep in the earth, and it was widely believed when the earth quaked or a volcano erupted, it was because one of the gigantes shifted in its burial chamber. The physical appearance of the gigantes in Greek mythology has changed over the years. At one point, they were described as half-man, half-serpent. At other times, they were depicted as warriors. By the 5th century BCE, the classic image of a very large, strong, and barbaric humanoid had become the dominant one, appearing widely in Greek literature and art. Whether they were half-man, half-serpent beasts, or large barbarians, giants have always been seen as the antithesis of the gods. According to classics researcher Heather Ray, giants represented hubris, lawlessness, and self-indulgence. While the gods stood for civility and order, giants personified chaos and rebellion. They were savages who resorted to violence at every turn. However, one giant stood in sharp contrast to the brutish, rebellious members of his species. His name was Argus Panoptes, and he was eager to serve the goddess Hera. Argus climbed the marble steps to Olympus with the head of Echidna, mother of monsters, clutched in one many-eyed arm. As he entered the home of the gods, he lowered his 100 eyes in a sign of respect. Argus felt the gods watching as he passed and heard their dark whispers. He did not blame them for their suspicions, The last time members of his species had come to Olympus, it had been to wage war against the gods. But Argus was nothing like those rebellious brutes. And now, by taking the head of Echidna, he had proven his sincerity. At the end of the hall, Queen Hera sat upon her throne, her favorite bird, the peacock, at her side. As Argus reached the goddess, he knelt before her and presented his trophy. Hera looked into the blank eyes of Echidna and smiled. The queen of the gods spoke, her voice ringing loud and clear for all the gods to hear. You have done well, Argus Panoptus. Few beings would even attempt such a task, and even fewer would be successful. Today you have shown your absolute loyalty. If I were to request your services again, would you provide them as you have done before? Argus beamed with pride. Of course, my queen. Anything you ask of me, I will do. Hera nodded, pleased. Zeus said she was a fool for relying on a giant, but Hera saw something in Argus. As her eyes scanned the hall, she frowned. Where was her husband, anyway? At that moment, far across Greece, the nymph princess Io was bathing in the Aenehos River. It was a daily ritual— She would leave the temple, make her way to the river, and show reverence to her father, the river god. But the hour was growing late, and Io knew it was time to return. As she turned to go, she was startled to discover a powerful man standing on the riverbank. He had been watching her. The man said to Io, my, what a beautiful maiden you are. Such beauty is worthy of Zeus. I suspect you make your husband very happy. Io blushed but shook her head, replying that she was not married. The man's eyes grew lustful. A devilish smile crossed his face. Well then, fair maiden, might I suggest you rest in the woods? Here. Come and lie next to me, under the trees and away from the sun. I will protect you from the boars and beasts running wild in the fields. I promise you will be safe, for you are in the presence of the god who can wield lightning from above." Io now realized that this was Zeus, king of the gods. She could see the wanton look in Zeus's eye and knew his true desires. Io kindly thanked Zeus, but declined. She turned and began to walk away, back to her father's house. As Io continued on, clouds began to form and fog blanketed the open fields. Panic swelled inside her. She began to run, but the fog grew thicker. Soon, Io was unable to see her own feet. Suddenly, she ran into something hard and fell to the ground. Her eyes moved up the mass that had stopped her, and she saw, to her horror, that she had run directly into Zeus. Zeus smiled as he towered over her. There was no escape for Io now. Sometime later, Io laid on the grass in shame. She gazed upon the satisfied Zeus, clearly pleased with himself that he got what he wanted. All Io wanted was to get back home to her father, to be as far away from here as possible. Suddenly, Zeus's smug smile disappeared and transformed into fear. Io was confused. Zeus rambled to himself, Hera knows something is wrong. She must not discover what I have done. She must not find this woman. Perhaps I'll put her in a cave or send her to a remote island. No, a disguise. Zeus turned toward Io, and then with a snap of his fingers, the bones in her body began to change. Her feet contorted and her face grew long. She had no idea what was happening. And then she saw something coming from the heavens. It floated down towards her and Zeus. As the object got closer, she realized what it was. Hera, queen of the gods. Hera coyly looked at Zeus and said, Where have you been, husband? Why was there a storm over Argolis? No sooner had Hera finished asking this question than she looked toward Io and paused, Io watched as the suspicious look in Hera's eye turned to one of reverence. Hera asked Zeus, "'Where did this cow come from, husband?' Io was confused. She looked around. No cows in sight. She wondered what Hera meant. Suddenly, Io felt a tug at her neck and began walking forward. Hera was leading her away from Zeus. The fear inside Io went wild, but she was still too afraid to speak in front of the gods. Hera didn't lead Io very far. She wondered if she was going to be killed because of Zeus's actions. Then she heard Hera yell a name, Argus Panoptes. Io thought it was a strange-sounding name, even more strange when Hera yelled it again. The earth began to tremble. Small rocks shook wildly on the ground. Suddenly, a massive shadow loomed over her. As Io turned, her eyes widened in terror. Before her was a giant, a giant whose body was covered in 100 blinking eyes. Io screamed, but all that came out was a low, bellowing sound. Hera ignored the pathetic noise. She turned to Argus and said, Argus Panoptus, I have a most important task for you. Coming up, Hera entrusts the Hundred-Eyed Giant to watch over Io, the cow. Now, back to the story. After slaying Echidna, mother of monsters, Argus Panoptes, the 100-Eyed Giant, became Queen Hera's most loyal servant. Argus waited patiently for his next assignment, He kept busy watching over the shepherds and cattlemen roaming the Argolese countryside at the ready in case they needed protection. And then Argus heard Hera call. He knew it could mean only one thing, another task. No matter what it was, he was ready to serve his queen. The origins of Argus Panoptes vary from poet to poet. Some claim that Argus was the son of the human king Arestor and the river nymph Makini, Makini being the namesake of the city Mycenae in Argolis. Others proclaim that he was the son of the titan Gaia, who birthed him without a father. Whatever Argus's origin, Panoptes wasn't his last name, but an epithet, Panoptis translates roughly into all-seeing and refers to the fact that his body was covered with one hundred eyes. While some eyes rested, others remained open so that he was never fully asleep, thus the giant could keep a watchful eye on anything, and in some versions of his story, Argus is able to grow as tall as a mountain, giving him the ability to see great distances. It's easy to see why Hera thought he would be the perfect guardian for the mysterious cow she found in her husband's company, a cow she highly suspected was more than a cow. When Argus arrived to heed Hera's call, he was confused to see that a beautiful snow-white cow was at Hera's side, instead of a peacock, her favorite bird. Hera explained, "'Zeus says this cow is merely a cow, "'but when was the last time my husband told me the truth? "'Watch over it. "'Ensure that Zeus doesn't try and steal her away.' "'Argus responded, "'My eyes will never leave her, my queen. "'Whether it be day or night, "'at least two eyes will keep careful watch. "'No matter where I stand,' She will be in my gaze." Hera was pleased. She handed the terrified Io to Argus and returned to Mount Olympus. Under Argus's watch, Io the cow was forced to graze the countryside. It was far from what she was accustomed to. Tree leaves, bitter herbs, and bushes, all washed down with dirty puddles of water. She was miserable, punished for her own misfortune. As the sun set and day turned to night, Argus took Io to an olive tree. With a rope, he tied her by the neck, making sure she couldn't wander off into the night. Argus rested by a different tree nearby, and though most of his eyes closed to sleep, at least two remained open vigilant in their duty to Hera. For days, this was Argus and Io's routine. Argus would rise, unfasten the rope, and allow Io to roam, but always kept a close watch on her. When night fell, he would confine her to the olive tree. Io was far from happy, but she needed to get all of Argus's eyes off of her if she was to flee. At first, she tried to hide behind a tree or a bush, but Argus was quick to find her. She tried to run away as fast as possible, but the giant grabbed her before she got far. Finally, Io tried to simply plead with him, but all that came from her mouth was that awful, low, bellowing sound. Argus cared little for the plight of Io, to him, she was nothing more than a cow, watching her a task in service of his mistress. Argus had a job to do, and he was determined to succeed. One day, Argus watched as Io wandered toward the Inahos River. As she slowly made her way, she grew happy and joyous. She could see fresh, clean water— glorious relief from drinking muddy sludge but at the water's edge she jumped with fright she saw her reflection for the first time since zeus had transformed her her white colored hide her snout for a nose horns protruding from her head io couldn't believe that this was her what had she done to deserve being raped and turned into a cow? Had she somehow offended all the gods? Io heard the sound of laughter in the distance. Some of her fellow nymphs were bathing downriver. She ran toward them, shouting for help. But all that came out was the low bellowing. Io hung her head in defeat. She was startled to feel a tender hand pat her on the back. Ayo turned. The sight filled her heart with joy. The hand belonged to her father, Inahos. She needed to find a way to communicate with Inahos. Ayo looked around for something, anything, to prove she was his daughter. She stomped in the mud, anxious. The mud! She'd spell her name in the muddy riverbank. Io slowly spelled out her story. Her father read the letters in confusion, but realization soon dawned on his face. Inahos cried out, "'It cannot be! Woe and alas! Woe and alas! This is my daughter, my Io, who I have searched for far and wide!' Inahos wrapped his arm around Io's neck and embraced her, and for the first time in many days, Io was truly happy. Perhaps in all the excitement, Io forgot Argus was watching from a distance. Seeing the cow interact with a river god, Argus realized that Hera was right. This cow was more than a cow. Zeus had lied again. But why? Argus began to question why he was given this task. Killing Echidna made sense. She was, after all, the mother of monsters. Her spawn had terrorized the people of Greece. But what threat did this cow pose? She was no monster. She certainly couldn't rise against the gods like the Titans or the Gigantes had. Argus's mind spun until, finally, he had enough. It was not his place to question the gods. If his task was to keep his eyes upon this cow, he would do as Hera requested. Despite being duty-bound, Argus felt some sympathy toward Io. It became obvious that she did not choose her fate, but that her fate was chosen for her. The least Argus could do was take Io to a nicer pasture to make her situation less unbearable. So Argus took Io by the rope and led her away from the river. Io tried to protest, to ask Argus to let her stay with Inahos, but all that came out was the low bellowing. Aenahos himself was unable to leave the riverlands, and Argus ignored his calls, worried the god was conspiring with Zeus. Once Argus found a suitable pasture, he let Io run free. Then he grew to the size of a mountain so that he would be able to see her no matter how far she went. Io knew there was no hope, from now until her death, she was to wake up, graze in the pastures, and sleep tied to a tree, and all under the hundred watchful eyes of Argus Panoptus. Back on Mount Olympus, Zeus was consumed with rage. How dare Hera leave his Io with this monstrosity to guard her? How dare she keep him, the king of the gods, away from something he so desired? He needed to have Io once more. He needed to free her from Argus's control. However, if he were to leave Olympus and transform Io back, Hera would surely discover his infidelity and deception. No, he needed to send someone else to free her. Hermes, Zeus called the trickster god. Hermes appeared in a flash. He smiled and asked his father why he was summoned. Zeus quickly told him that he had a mission on Earth that he needed Hermes to accomplish, if Hermes was up to the task. Hermes nodded, of course. Name what you need, and I shall accomplish it by any means necessary. Zeus smiled devilishly. He put his arm around his son and said, I need you to free my Io from her watcher. I need you, Hermes, to kill Argus Panoptes. Coming up, Argus faces off against Hermes. Now back to the story. For days, the giant Argus Panoptes had kept his 100 watchful eyes on Io, the nymph Zeus had raped, then turned into a cow so as to keep his assault and infidelity secret from his wife Hera. Hera. Suspicious, Hera had charged Argus with watching the cow, though neither Hera nor Argus was aware who the cow really was, or why Zeus cared about her. Now, high up on Mount Olympus, Zeus watched in anger as Io was being kept from him. He wanted her back. He'd called upon his son Hermes to kill Argus and free Io. Hermes was all too eager to accept the mission. Hermes bolted down to earth. He disguised himself as a shepherd, donning a robe and a sun hat. Then he took out his snake-twined wing-topped staff and used it to herd some sheep. As he herded the sheep toward Argus and Io, he began to play from his reed flute. It wasn't long before the music caught the ear of Argus Panoptis. Argus looked around, but couldn't find the source of the melody. This was especially strange, considering that when he expanded to mountain size, he could see just about everywhere in the world at all times. Finally, one of Argus's eyes spotted a small shepherd in the distance, playing the flute. And to Argus's delight, the shepherd headed his way. As Hermes got closer, Argus merrily proclaimed, You there, shepherd, come over here and sit with me by this rock. There is plenty of grass here for your flock to graze from, and there is a lovely tree to provide you with shade if you need to rest. Hermes smiled to himself as he continued to play. His ruse was working. As Hermes and the sheep came toward Argus, Argus asked, Who are you who plays such beautiful music? Hermes said he was a simple shepherd, who played because his flock enjoyed the music. Argus smiled in delight. He again invited Hermes to rest under the tree. Hermes obliged. He set his staff to the side and plopped underneath the olive tree. It gave him a perfect view of Io grazing in the distance. Hermes said, That is a beautiful snow-white cow. Is she yours? Argus shook his head. She is my master's. I have been tasked to keep a watchful eye over her. For the next several hours, Argus and Hermes casually chatted. No topic was off-limits, whether it be about the shepherd's flock or political intrigue. At times, Hermes played from his flute, and Argus enjoyed every minute of it. However, Hermes was becoming agitated. As he played, he noticed that some of Argus's eyes would fall asleep, but not all of them. He didn't understand why the music wasn't working. Hermes continued to play until finally, Argus put his hand up to stop. He asked the trickster god where he came across such a beautiful flute. Hermes smiled, knowing that this was his opening. He responded, it is new. Never before has a flute such as this been created. Argus was baffled. He asked, how did you come by such a thing? Hermes thought that perhaps a tedious story might get the other half of Argus's eyes to close. He began the tale of the wood nymph Syrinx and Pan. Syrinx lived in the mountains of Arcadia and was known for her beauty. However, following the example of the goddess Artemis, she vowed chastity. Syrinx refused any and all suitors. However, the satyr, Pan, was determined to win her over. He made advances. Syrinx refused and ran away through the woods. Pan chased after her. When they came across a river, Pan was stopped in his tracks at an unusual sound. He turned and saw reeds blowing in the wind. It was unlike anything he had ever heard. Pan at once knew he needed to recapture the beautiful music. So he took the reeds and bound them together to make this flute and... (sniffs) Hermes stopped when he heard the giant snoring. Argus was asleep. Hermes began to inspect Argus, making sure that each and every eye was really closed. Hermes was delighted to discover that the boring story had worked. Argus was completely asleep. Now was Hermes' chance. He hadn't much time to waste. He produced a sickle-shaped sword from his cloak, The blade shined brightly as the afternoon sun hit the edge. Hermes slowly and quietly aimed his sword at the sleeping giant's neck. He raised the sword high and brought it crashing down with all of his might. With a single swing, Hermes removed the giant's head from its body, Blood splattered, spraying from the neck like a geyser. Argus Panoptes was no more, killed in his sleep, the same way he himself had slain the mother of monsters. Hermes stared at the 100-eyed corpse. At last, Zeus would know that he was his father's most loyal son. On Mount Olympus, Hera sensed the death of her servant Argus. She turned her gaze and saw the giant's dead body. Next to it, she saw Hermes holding Argus' head towards her, as if presenting it as a trophy. Hera was filled with rage. She screamed and vowed revenge, not on Zeus, but on Io. Back on Earth, Io realized that Argus was no longer watching her. This was her chance to flee. She ran as fast as she could, never looking back. She ran and ran until finally, she couldn't go any further. Io suddenly felt a sharp pain in her back, as if she had been stung by a bee. She was horrified to discover that a large, demonic-looking gadfly hovered around her. In a fit of rage, Hera had conjured up a gadfly and sent it to torment Io. Io tried to swat the gadfly with her tail, but it was too quick. Whenever it had an opening, it stung Io's body. Io yelped in pain. Her only choice was to run. Io ran out of the Peloponnese, north through Thessaly and across Macedonia. She traveled around the Aegean Sea and through Palestine, through the deserts of Sinai and into Egypt. With each step that Io took, the gadfly was at her side, stinging every chance it got. Soon, I.O. reached the Nile River. She had no choice but to try and cross it. But as she made her way, she found that the bed of the river was muddy. She began to sink. She turned around, but saw the gadfly waiting for her at the riverbank. Io looked up to the heavens and began to pray, please, may the gods show me mercy. I know not what I did to deserve such a fate. Please save me. On Mount Olympus, Io's cries reached Zeus's ears. The desperation in her voice cut through Zeus's cold heart. He turned to Hera and confessed, He begged his wife to end Io's torment. He swore on the river Styx that he would never again touch the nymph. Hera was wary of the words coming from Zeus's mouth. However, the longer she looked, the more she saw sincerity in his eyes. Her vengeance and rage slowly disappeared. Finally, she nodded and agreed to end Io's torture. Hera summoned the gadfly back and allowed Io to return to the banks of the river. When she set foot on land, Zeus transformed Io back into her original form. The horns slowly shrank into nothing and her cloven feet returned to normal. And when she opened her mouth to speak, she was overjoyed to hear not the low bellow, but her own voice. Up on Olympus, Hera may have forgiven her husband, but she was still overcome with sadness at the death of her servant, Argus. The giant had been loyal to her, and she wanted to honor him. Her favorite bird was the peacock, and so she decided to take the eyes of Argus and put them on the peacock's feathers. This way, everywhere the peacock was, so too was Argus's gaze. For thousands of years, the peacock has been revered across various cultures, even regarded as a symbol of royalty but the ancient Greeks also considered the peacock to be a symbol of immortality and resurrection. This may explain why Hera chose the peacock to honor Argus. Though the giant was no more, by taking his eyes and placing it on the immortal bird, Hera allowed him to live on. And even though the peacock sheds its feathers, that they grow back with the eye spot means that Argus's watch will never end. Historically, giants in Greek mythology represented impiety and chaos. Since their inception, they were seen as the antithesis of the orderly world of the gods. They attempted to overthrow Olympus and were resoundingly defeated by the gods. It was barbarism versus civility, and civility won the day. Argus Panoptus, on the other hand, was different. Unlike the rebellious Gigantus of years past, Argus was a loyal servant. In this way, he represented the potential for chaos to become ordered, for the uncivilized to reform and take their place in culture. But this is also perhaps his greatest weakness. Though he was all-seeing, his loyalty made him blind. Because he was unwavering in his service to Hera, he failed to realize that he was merely a pawn in a game being played by the gods. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson.